Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... Television writer and producer Davi Waller. She joins me to talk about Mrs. America. It's FX on Hulu's new miniseries based on the historical movement to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. What I really wanted to do with the series is show there's so many different ways to be a woman, and there's so many different definitions of womanhood. And there's so much diversity that sisterhood and womanhood isn't monolith. And I thought the best way to really dramatize that was to have these multiple perspectives and not be singular about it. Here's our interview. Dobby, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Mark. And now the series tells a story that is both sweeping and specific. It's the struggle to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, but it's also about the women behind both sides of the issue For you as a starting place, was it with that bigger picture of the ERA or was it more in the personalities of, say, Phyllis Schlafly or Gloria Steinem? It really started with uh, the issue of the ERA when uh, our non-writing producer, Stacey Scher, pitched me the idea of centering a show around Phyllis Schlafly's campaign against the ERA. Uh, I thought that was such a clever way into a series, and I was really interested in creating a series that's centered on women in politics. But like anything I've ever written, I always want to come at it from the point of view of character and really let character drive the story, not the timeline or the chronology of events. So immediately I went and I started thinking about, well, how can I take Phyllis Schlafly and then all the feminist leaders and how can I weave together a series that really tells an emotional story rather than a sort of a factual, you know, year by year kind of story. And now the show has this really incredible structure that every episode is based around a different character and it it just creates a real sense of how many different kinds of personalities were involved in this issue at the time, how did you kind of come to that idea as like a structuring device? It actually started, like most things in writing, as a problem needing to be solved, which is on one side, you have Phyllis Schlafly, and she was the singular leader of the opposition. There was no other leader. She was very much in charge and ran everything very autocratically. On the other side, the women's movement, like most social change, change movements, had many leaders, was wonderfully democratic. And I wanted each of them to have their due. I didn't think it was honest to portray only one of them as the sole leader and tell the story from only one of their points of view. And I also wanted to tell the story of the birth of intersectional feminism. And to do that, you have to really spend time with different characters. So that was a challenge to figure out how this asymmetrical storytelling where you have one character on one side and many characters on the other. And I decided if I structure each episode rotate through the feminist characters and really go home with each of them and think about each episode as that character's aria, so to speak, then they each get their moment to really shine. And I also think the storytelling becomes more emotional because, for instance, in episode four, you get to go home with Betty Friedan after three episodes of really only seeing her in group scenes. And you might have an idea of her as being like the thorn in the side for Gloria Steinem and and Bella Abzug. Then suddenly episode four, you're suddenly in her apartment with her best friend, with her daughter. You're getting to see her home life and all her insecurities and and doubts and really humanize her. And that seemed a way to tell a much more emotional story in the end. 
I've heard you use that phrase aria in some other interviews. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Just like having their chance to really have their solo, to really get to, you know, especially if you're seeing them through other people's eyes in other episodes, I guess I just mean that you get to, they get their moment to really say, here's my point of view and here's where I'm coming from and 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 not be interrupted <laughs> by sort of the others or the chorus to get to stand out in a way. Because one of the things I, I found so intriguing about that structure is that characters that I think in most tellings of a story like this or in a different way of going about it would easily get kind of cast aside. I mean, I'm thinking of Shirley Chisholm, played by Uzo Adubo, or Jill Ruckelshaus, played by Elizabeth Banks, or even Brenda Feigen-Fasto, who's played by Ari Grainer. Like, it allows you to sort of focus on characters that kind of could have just been secondary, and it really just sort of fills out the viewer's understanding of, like, who all of these people really are. This is very much an ensemble piece. It's not a biopic. It's not a biopic of Phil Schlafly. It's not a biopic of Gloria Steinem. It really is an ensemble. And all these women play their role. And you're right, some of these secondary characters would normally not get a lot to do. But by focusing a whole episode on Shirley, a whole episode on Bella, a whole episode on Jill, they don't get lost. And I also, what I really wanted to do with the series is show there's so many different ways to be a woman and there's so many different definitions of womanhood. There's so much diversity that sisterhood and womanhood isn't monolith. And I thought the best way to really dramatize that was to have these multiple perspectives and not be singular about it. And now with regards to intersectionality, like you mentioned, did you grapple at all with like telling this story set in the 1970s, but obviously you're telling it from the perspective of now, how much were you grappling with what kind of lens to view it through, whether you wanted to tell the modern version of this story, to be honest, to sort of like who they were and what their perspectives were at the time? Was that was that something you had to sort of grapple with at all? Absolutely. I think every writer who writes a period drama of any kind grapples with how to remove that modern day lens that we just automatically have. We have a certain way of thinking about things that are different than how it was thought about back then. Uh, one of the ways that I that I countered that was I spent a lot of time uh, on newspapers.com reading newspaper articles from the 1970s. So really getting inside the mind of these women back then, how they spoke about the movement, how they spoke about each other and themselves, what language they used. For instance, back then, the term women of color really wasn't coined until 1977 and didn't come into popular usage until far more recently. So women of color were referred to as minority women. So even though that sounds weird to my ears and certainly not how a term we use today, that is how they spoke about it. So so really trying to immerse ourselves in the language of the 1970s uh, helped a lot. Also, I think you're right that the women's movement famously excluded women of color and gay rights from their agenda for a long time for much of the 70s. But we as writers didn't want the series to make that same mistake in 2020. So we didn't want the series to have that, you know, to, we wanted the series to be more inclusive than probably the women's movement was. At the same time, be honest and realistic about those tensions as they were back then. And luckily, all these women wrote memoirs, many, many memoirs. <laughs> I wish they had written a few fewer memoirs. So we were able to read how they thought about that time and the tensions at that time, as opposed to their lens 40 years later. Because the history of feminism, I mean, second wave, third wave, fourth wave, I mean, there are whole academic departments dedicated 
to the study and history of this. And for you, tell me a little bit more about how you just grappled with that. I mean, what kind of research did you do? I find it so, the end of the series, the final episode, there's you see sort of news footage of the real you know, women that the stories are about, but also you're seeing the actual sort of like events, the the conventions, the public debates. Like, how did you sort of grapple with this sort of patchwork of personalities events and weave them together? Like, what kind of research did you do and how did you put it all together? You know, we didn't have any IP for this series. It was really this, you know, one line that was pitched to me and then everything stemmed from there. So I studied history in college, so I'm not too afraid of a primary source. <laughs> so I am I love going directly to uh, source material. Whether I read, as I mentioned, went, read a million newspaper articles, pretty much every interview ever done with any of these women in the 1970s. I read not only all their memoirs, biographies of them, and then also political history books about that time period. Um, my dad is a political scientist uh, who studies American government uh, and constitutional law. So I was very lucky. Probably also explains how I arrived at doing this series. But I would call him <laughs> whenever I had a question, you know, about the 1972 convention. What was going on with McGovern? He always, you know, he gave uh, he was, and didn't charge me, which was very nice of him. <laughs> and then, as you said, there's a lot of there's not a lot of video or news coverage of the women's movement, which is a sad state of media back then. But any footage there was, we watched. There was a lot of footage of the 1977 Women's Convention in Houston, as well as the uh, Family Values Convention that Phyllis Schlafly hosted. It, there's video of it. There's video of the convention in 1972. There are several amazing documentaries that I watched, like Unbought and Unbossed, which is a great documentary on Shirley Chisholm that came out in 2005 that I highly recommend. She's Beautiful When She's Angry, The Year of the Woman is another documentary, and even used some footage from that documentary in the show. And Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, who are a directing team, who directed four episodes in the series, including the pilot. You know, we had many conversations early on, you know, do we want to include archival footage in the series. And, you know, it's such an unbelievable story. And it's sort of like, you can't really believe this is this happened. Like, did women really bring baked bread to the legislature? Did that actually happen? That we, we thought of, you know, bringing in some of that archival footage that we had discovered in our research to really put you in that time of place and really say, you know, this really happened, this, this thing that we're, that we're dramatizing. In particular, the sort of the conflicts within the women's liberation movement, as you mentioned, I mean, the depiction in the story of Betty Friedan or the way that the political pragmatism of Bella Abzug, I'm assuming your sort of like personal politics and feelings were sort of on the side of the women's liberation movement. And was it difficult to depict them at times in this difficult light? Like like not all the characters are always behaving in sort of the the best way you would you would imagine. It was hard, definitely, but I really wanted to portray these women, to humanize these women and not portray them as solely larger than life. I mean, they are larger than life, but they are also human with all the same self-doubts as any woman. And I love when I get to see men arguing and have conflict and tension when it comes to politics. And we just call that conflict. When it's women, we call it a cat fight. And I really wanted to attack that and challenge viewers to allow women to have the same tensions and conflict around issues that they are so passionate about as we allow men to have. So I I really kind of drove right into it. And I think it helped that when you look at the arc of the series that, yes, they made a lot of mistakes, especially early on in the decade. But you see them learning from their mistakes and, you know, never perfectly. But as you move towards 1980, 
they really learned from their mistakes. They embraced gay rights and they embraced uh, issues of race as being an integral part of the feminist movement. And so I think that made it easier for me, knowing that they're headed in, in a better direction to, to kind of you know, let some of those warts show early on. But, you know, Shirley wrote a book called, um, I'm going to get this right, The Good Fight, I think it's called, right after her run for president. And she was really honest about how she felt betrayed both by the Black Caucus and the Women's Caucus. And I, I felt I need to be true to that and not sanitize that in any way. On the other side, I got such a kick out of the way in which throughout the series, Phyllis Schlafly keeps encountering these people that we now know as part of the more sort of contemporary conservative movement. Like, I think Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld both sort of like flip through. And then there's a somewhat hilarious moment when she's introduced to Roger Stone and Paul Manafort. What was it that made you want to sort of, did you want to position Phyllis as some sort of an avatar of what was to come in the sort of modern conservative movement? You know, when when we originally sold this to FX in early 2016, uh, we had no idea what was going to happen in nine months. And the show really was more narrowly focused on the women's movement and this uh, Stop ERA movement. And once the 2016 election happened and you could sort of see a if you pulled out a direct line that you could draw from Goldwater, who Phyllis championed in 1960s through Trump, I realized I needed to pivot and have the series be a broader look at how the fault lines in our political landscape began in the 70s and you know led to where we are today. So that's when I was interested in broadening Phyllis's story to include what, what I think was her greater achievement, which was building a grassroots army that became foot soldiers in the Reagan revolution. And so that's when I brought in, um, you know, Jesse Helms and Joseph Kors and John Sears. And, you know, the fact that Stone and Manafort were, you know, working for Reagan in 1980 and whipping up delegates. I thought that really speaks a lot to where we are today. So that's the moment I was writing the pilot in in um, November 2016, and that's the moment where this became about the more than just the Equal Rights Amendment fight, but also about the shift to the right of the Republican Party. Um, and that's when I became very interested in the in Liz Banks' character of Jill Ruckelshaus, who represented. You know, I had no idea that there were Republican feminists. <laughs> You know, back then, because there are very few of them today. So that that's when that story took that turn. And, and those characters seemed really. And I also like the idea of, you know, in the last year, we've had a movie about Dick Cheney. We've had a movie about Gary Hart. And all the women were just background players or wives. And I love the idea that this show, which is centered on women, that's the men who have cameos who just appear for like a brief second in the background. And they're not the main thrust of the story. And now the depiction of Phyllis Schlafly, both in the sort of the, the writing of the character, then certainly in the performance from Kate Blanchett, that she's an anti-hero, she's something of a villainess, she's a foil, but there's also something sympathetic and even tragic about her. How did you come to that conception of her, and did you grapple with it at all in relation to your own personal politics? I'm never interested in writing a character who's two-dimensional. So I always I always knew I wanted to write her three-dimensional. And then the question becomes, how do you get inside her head? How do you find a way in or empathy for this person who, like you said, is so different from me? And I think I really started out with this question. There are two questions I would say central to the series as I was working on it. One was, is sisterhood powerful? You know, that was the mantra of the feminist movement, but is sisterhood really powerful? Is it monolithic? Are 
are all women by virtue of being sisters on the same side. And then related to that, you're looking at these two sides of the fight. And on one side, you have women who want to smash the patriarchy and get rid of it and dismantle it. And on the other hand, you have women who are fighting to preserve it, to preserve this patriarchal order. And that raised an interesting question for me, which is why would a woman be complicit in her own oppression? And that's a really fascinating question for me. So through Phyllis and the homemakers that followed her was a chance to answer that question, which really interested me. That's how I approached her, was trying to figure out what about her childhood, biography, home life, psyche, made her fight for something that ultimately would put her in a cage. And I've seen at least one review of the show already that kind of bemoans the fact that it is too sympathetic to Phyllis Schlafly. How do you feel about that? Well, first I question if they got to the end of the series. <laughs> but then, <laughs> look, I think, you know, I, I actually spoke to a lot of second waivers in developing the show and they'd hear the concept and they're like, how could you do that? She's the Antichrist. She's the enemy. I don't want to, I'm not interested. And that's completely defensible. And I think if you are someone who does not want to, watch a show, just like, you know, I might not want to watch a show about Joe Paterno or Bernie Madoff. I'm not interested in seeing them humanized. So that's a totally defensible position. And I would say, you know, maybe this isn't for you. But my answer to that is, if you want to anticipate and be prepared for the next backlash, because there will always be a backlash anytime there's a movement forward in this country, you need to understand why leaders like Phyllis Schlafly got such a big following. You have to understand her appeal. And if you're not rooting for her or you don't find her sympathetic, you will not understand why she appealed to thousands of politically conservative women. And that's how I'd answer that. I know I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying that both that we see Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug, Shirley Chisholm all one way or another sort of let down by the Democratic political establishment. And we also see Phyllis let down by the Republican political establishment. Did you want there to be some sort of an equivocation there or like the fact that they're sort of all let down in one way or another. You hit on something, a truism about this show, Mark, which we used to joke in the writer's room that the tagline should be, Mrs. America, women can't win. <laughs> because it just seemed like they're... And in many ways, this is a tragedy um, on both sides. That's just the truth. These women were let down by the political establishment. And for some women, they learned that I guess the only way is to really smash it and to try to build something new. And for other women, they kept trying to like maneuver and make it work. But I, I think, yeah, I did want to speak to, we have a political establishment that is that was set up by the founding fathers that is patriarchal. And it is very hard to get stuff done within that. And that's what you see in the show, that ultimately you're relying on the white male with power to give you, as Shirley Chisholm says, like some pieces of crumbs from the pie. And you're all, not only that, for so long, most of that pie was shared by white males and they don't want to give up that those pieces of pie, you know? So you end up having, you know, other groups, you know, oppressed groups have to fight over that one single slice that's being given to them. And, and there's a sense of scarcity. So is it any wonder that there's so much tension and infighting when there's so much scarcity and you're not given much power at all? As you mentioned, Phyllis was really the sort of sole figure to stand out from the sort of anti-ERA movement. And so where while on the pro-ERA side, you have all these really vivid characters, you know, Gloria and Bella and Shirley, for to sort of create a circle of people around 
Phyllis, you had to create some fictional characters there played by uh, Sarah Paulson and Kaylee Carter. Can you talk a little bit about that? Were you more free in a way with what you could do with those characters? Or did you feel like you had to be really careful that they wouldn't, your your characters weren't going to behave sort of out of step of what a, an actual acolyte of Phyllis's would have done? That's a great question. And you really hit on the exact reason why we created the characters of Alice and Pamela. They're actually not fictional characters. I would say they're composite characters because they are based on a combination of real life women, both Schlafly Eagles, who I'd spoken to or written their, read about their writings. Two neighbors of Phyllis's are inspirations for the character of Alice. Uh, one of whom actually ended up not only joining now, but opening up a pro ERA headquarters across the street from Phyllis's husband's law firm. <laughs> so there were really real life inspirations for the characters, but because those are not public figures, we felt we had to make them composite. We couldn't use any real names. So I did feel, we did feel you are freer with composite characters, of course, to give them a voice and a bit of a biography and not stick to exactly what they said or exactly their writings. But I did feel bound to represent them accurately. For instance, if I'd never read about the two neighbors of Phyllis's who join now, I don't know that that would have figured into Alice's character at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've heard you talk about putting together the cast of the show, but I haven't actually heard you talk very much about the the filmmakers that are directors of, of the show. I mean, it's a fantastic group of people who are all at really interesting points in their career. Obviously, Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck coming right off of Captain Marvel, Ama Asante, who's still maybe best known for her movie Belle, Laura de Clermont-Tonnerre, who made a movie called The Mustang, and then Janixa Bravo, who has her movie Zola coming out later this year. And every one of those those directors, you can feel them in their episodes. Like, they were sort of, like, cast for those episodes in a way that I found really compelling. How did you and the other producers on the show come to put together those filmmaking teams? So... We started by collaborating with Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. So they were brought on to to direct the pilot in episode two and then thankfully agreed to also direct two more episodes, which I'm very thankful for. And they really immediately became part of our team. They set the visual style of the show and they're just unbelievable in collaborating and, and every step all the way through post. And we really thought about, you know, because each episode has its own distinct flavor and its own perspective, we really thought about who's the best director to to dramatize this particular episode, like whose skill set and point of view and unique talents are perfect for this episode. So, and the producers were all great. And sort of, we all put our heads together to think about who would be right for which. And, you know, once you have Kate Blanchett starring in your show and this incredible cast, you, the number of directors that you can go out to suddenly widens. And, and so we are very lucky to get the interest of these incredible filmmakers who, you're right, are all, um, they all have such strong voices. One of my favorite episodes of Atlanta was directed by Janixa. And and so when I was talking to Coco Francini, who's one of our executive producers, she said, I think Janixa would be perfect for eight which is its own beast. It's a really different kind of episode and it's a little weird and it's a little surreal and Janixa just would be perfect for that. And that's, that's totally right. And Lore, I, when I watched the Mustang, she did such an incredible job in the very first few minutes creating this tension with like animals. I mean, I was feeling so tense for the horses in the first five minutes and it was yet very quiet. And I thought, oh, you know, that kind of quiet tension is simmering all the way through episodes five and six, and she would be perfect for that. So 
it was, it really was, I would say we cast the directors almost as much as we cast the actors for the series. Some of your other credits as a, a writer and a producer are on Mad Men, Halt and Catch Fire. And those are both shows which also had a really keen sense of gender dynamics in the workplace and also sort of the difficulty of maintaining divisions between like a personal and a professional life. Like how, how conscious are you of that? Like, do you feel like these are like thematic ideas that you've been interested in pursuing or is it just more a coincidence that these are just sort of like shows you've ended up working on? You never think about it at the time. You just think, oh, I really, really want to work on that show. But when I look back or when you connect the dots for me as you are now, I, I'm sure that I was attracted to Mad Men and Halt and Catch Fire, not only for the brilliant writing on it, but also because it hit on themes that I that really resonated with me and that I cared about um, and always wanted to write about. So I think you're right. There is. And also I love history and I love getting all those details of history into a TV show. So probably... Because those are two shows that I actively went after as opposed to like, oh, I need some money. I got to find a job. You know, so they were really like shows that I was so passionate about and so felt so lucky to be hired to be on the staff. So, yes, I think those uh, gender dynamics, workplace dynamics, the per personal versus the professional or public persona versus our personal uh, at home persona, which I think I'm really in touch with now that we're all at home and we're doing work from home. I think we're all keenly aware of our public persona versus how we are when we're alone. I think those those are sort of running themes throughout all my work. And then just the, the last thing that I want to ask you is the ERA was recently ratified in what should be the, the last state, although it looks like it's probably not going to become law. When you began this Working on this series, that was certainly not in the news. Donald Trump was not president. We were not in the moment of Me Too. What do you make of the way that the time that you've been working on this show, everything that's gone on culturally, how do you feel about that? How do you grapple with that in relation to the show? Well, first of all, when you say that, I, my first takeaway is, oh my God, I've been working on this show for so long. <laughs> That is so painful to think about how long this development process was to get this on the air. Then I think that's kind of spooky. I mean, it, it's so funny how when we were in the writer's room in 2018, we were grappling with how are we going to explain what the hell the ratification process is to American audiences. They're never going to understand it. It's so not intuitive. And then by the time the show comes out, you know, John Oliver has done an amazing primer on last week tonight about exactly how the area ratification it works and the last three states that ratified in the last three years. Sometimes, you know, the zeitgeist catches up to you and sometimes you're behind. I don't know, you respond to it. It'll seem like we were responding to the 2016 election, but really um, this was sold to FX before Trump was ever elected. I think it is really interesting that the ERA had a resurgence, I think in no small part due to the 2016 election. And one of the things I really learned from working on this show is to take sort of the bird's eye view of political history in this country. Things really happen in cycles. I used to think that progress was linear and it really isn't. It goes in waves and you take a step forward and then there's a backlash and then you take another step forward and you forge on. So I'm not surprised that it's come about because we're about at that place in the cycle where there's going to be a resurgence of women realizing, wait a minute, we, we can't be complacent. We don't live in a post-feminist world. There's so much work to be done still. We have to keep fighting and hopefully maybe we will. I hope we do. <laughs> the show is Mrs. America. Davi Waller, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Mark. It was so fun to talk to you.
That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash The Real. 